Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to the Ad Nauseam Podcast. We're at episode 22 today. Uh, my name is Jeff Winkle, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Dave Noe. How you doing today, Dave? I'm doing great, Jeff. Good to see you. It's a cold, wintry day here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but as always, it's temperate here in the Vomitorium. Absolutely. Yeah. And spring is in sight. If we can just get through this... I know you're it's looking at sight. me skeptically. It's not in sight. If we can just get through the next five to six weeks, when we hit mid-March... It's over for the most part. It, yes, uh, in a good year, in a good year. I'll, All right. I'll try to share your optimism. Let's hope this is a good year, huh? Yeah. So do I got the shout out today? I believe I got the shout out. You know, I think you got the shout out Do today. I? Okay. Yes. Let's get that shout out. This goes to Brent and Laura Schubert, who listen uh, right nearby here in Ada, Michigan. Not and just a stone's throw from where we're a sitting. A stone's throw. Yep. yep. And uh, they've been enjoying the podcast for a while. So we want to say hello, Brent. Hello, Laura. Fantastic. Thank you both for listening. And I believe, Dave, you also have our opening quote for yeah, today. Yeah, I'm kind of hogging it today. That's all this, right. This one comes from Torquato Tasso. Torquato? Torquato, yes, That's an Italian epicist. He wrote Jerusalem Liberata, which is Jerusalem delivered. It's uh, an epic about the Crusades. It's written in Italian. So he wrote this in um, 1594, this uh, particular quote. He says, a heroic poem, that is an epic, is an imitation of noble action, great and perfect, narrated in the loftiest verse, with the aim of giving profit through delight. Hmm. I like that a lot. We're talking about, can I give away what we're talking about today? Of course. Oh, this is the right time. About, we're talking about Homer's Odyssey today. And so, Dave, it's fitting that you read the opening quote, because you chose that quote. Of the thousands upon thousands of quotes uh, having to do with the Odyssey to choose, I'm just curious, why did you gravitate towards this one from Torquato? That's a good question. So I read a book a few years back, and I think the title is The Idea of Epic, um, J.B. Hainsworth, if memory serves. And so he looks at all of the different definitions of epic, stretching all the way back to Homer, you know, Homer, Virgil. And then you've got this fellow, uh, Tasso. You have Milton, of course. And at the end of the episode, we have a quote from a 20th century student of epic. And what I like about this is it's everyone knows what epic is. Mm -hmm. When you see it, you know what it is, right? But defining it is really difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the interesting part of the book is that the definition of epic has changed over time. And uh, that's something I'd like us to talk about today a little bit. Sure. Um, but Tasso says, it's an imitation of noble action, great and perfect, narrated in the loftiest verse. And then this is the really interesting part, the aim of giving profit, right? Improving or helping a person in some way and doing so through delight. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that, that last part. Uh, epic should be fun. Yes. Yeah. And it achieves most of its effect by uh, entertaining the reader or the listener. Right. And that, I mean, that's so at odds with, I think, what a, a lot of certainly students coming at old works, ancient works, they assume kind of a level of drudgery. It's heavy. It's heavy. Austere, maybe. Right. But Torquato says, uh-uh. Right. If it ain't fun, it ain't epic. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and But the, the other important part here that often snags contemporary uh, readers here thinking of my students is the point about it being narrated in verse. This is a theme mm. we've been on several times here in the podcast, Yeah, is the importance of genre. 
You know, yes. genre matters. And poetry is how one says something significant. Prose is a late development. Like you said, we, we've talked a lot about that and how those, those two things have kind of swapped their place today. Absolutely. Right? Poetry is thought to be a kind of a luxury. Correct. At best. Yeah, it's playful. It's uh, silly almost. Right. Imagine reading in the newspaper an editorial that's written as a poem. People would just kind of chuckle and dismiss it, right? But yeah. Ancients had the opposite. Yeah, exactly right. Understanding. Exactly right. So we're talking about the Odyssey today. Yeah. So what are we going to give our listeners, Jeff? I would think that somebody tuning into a classics-themed podcast would expect the, the Odyssey to come up sooner than later. And I guess, you know, we're here at episode 22. I guess this is sooner than later. Well, because we have the next thousand or so scoped out. Right? <laughs> it's all this, mapped out. <laughs> this is pretty early in the game. <laughs> right. But I have to admit that I was a little, I don't know, a little nervous about doing the Odyssey, uh, just because there's there's so much out there. And we, we, did, we did the Iliad early on. Uh, my sense is the Odyssey is an epic that's uh, more widely read. For sure. It's better known by the general audience. And so it's kind of an intimidating thing to try to cover, mm-hmm. um, to try to do it differently, to try to do it well. There's a lot of competition, let's just say that. Yeah, exactly. You know, this is a storyline that has been covered in pop culture repeatedly. Yes. Some of my favorite renditions would be The Simpsons, right? But oh, yes. Even older sitcoms and movies and such, they've been over this ground again and again. Exactly right. So, so what could we possibly contribute right. to our listeners? Yeah. And and just speaking of that, um, a couple of summers ago, I, I visited the um, the papyrology collection at University of Michigan. The people there laid out a bunch of, of papyri for uh, myself and my students to look at. And one of them that, that they laid out, I think it was fifth century parody of Homer, a parody of the Odyssey um, with the characters being played by mice and weasels. Oh, yes. So, so this has been tweaked. And, and, and played with and parodied for, for centuries. Yeah. What are we going to offer? Right. Well, well, we're going to break it down, okay. as they say. We're going we're gonna to get... Uh, Do they gonna, still say that? I don't know. It's <laughs> late say, 80s, right? wasn't it? You mentioned the word epic, right? That's just become kind of a generic You're right. uh, you know, adjective for anything big. Yeah, that hamburger was epic. Was epic. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to break down this narrative. We're going to get underneath the, the hood. We're going to look at uh, elements of character, plot, structure, nuance. Um, you and I both don't know how many episodes it's going to be yet. No, no. As we said last week, we're going to interrupt it with some special guests, some some really interesting folks coming uh, down the line on some a variety of themes. We already mentioned our good friend Gary Schmidt, the yes. New York Times bestselling author who's going to appear uh, sometime in early March. But we have a couple other surprises lined up. But for the Odyssey, we're going to have to be on this topic a while because it's so rich, so delicious, and uh, epic. It is it, definitely <laughs> epic, right? And just like with the Iliad, we're not going to be able to cover it all. Would, would that be one of those dad jokes? <laughs> that we've been accused of, yeah. of telling? Yeah. If you're out there and you're listening, you know who you are. <laughs> exactly. And we're still not happy about that. No, 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 no. Now, the first thing that we want to do as we approach the Odyssey is set up a little bit of contrast with its older brother, the Iliad. That's right. We want to show what some of the key differences are before we come down to the nitty gritty. Right. There, in many ways, there's such different uh, poems and different stories uh, to the degree I know that that has factored into... Um, some scholars questioning whether the same poet could even be responsible for both of them. Yes, that's right. So Aristotle, once again, the best biologist ever to write on literature, (laughs) uh, said that while the Iliad is about pathos, suffering, and the Iliad was written by a young man, he thought, the Odyssey is about ethos, character, ethics, habit, and the Odyssey was written by Homer in his senescence when he was an old man. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, I don't, who, who can possibly know if it's true? I have found it to be 
an incredibly useful way of understanding the two poems. Yeah. I mean, I, I think certainly you could make the argument that just in terms of the way the plot is laid out, um, the Iliad is a much more linear narrative. It takes you from point A to point B. And the Odyssey jumps all over the place in terms of its flashbacks. It's got different geographies. Absolutely. And there, there are multiple stories going on. So, I mean, if you thought of this as Homer was developing as a poet, mm-hmm. and he's he's becoming more uh, nuanced and and handling more complex narratives as he gets older. I'll, I'll buy it. Very persuasive. Do you remember what you were like as a young man, say 20 years old? Yeah, I try not to think about I've it. I've seen some of those Facebook photos you post oh, there, God. Dr. It, Winkle. It's awful. Isn't and it? I remember what I was like too. And uh, <laughs> if I had Homer's talent, I would have written an epic like the Iliad, filled with conflict and strife and anger. And, yes. And as I age, it's not that those things go away completely, but your life takes on a little different coloring, right? <laughs> it's very true. You I, become I, domesticated. Right, exactly. I, mean, I think about you know, some of the, the, like the first songs I wrote. Oh, insufferable. Yes. Yes, exactly. Just, you know, just dripping with kind of ridiculous metaphors and taking myself way too oh, seriously. Oh, yeah. And the Germans right. have a word for this, too. Angst. Angst. Yeah, yes. There's very so much of that. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so that's, for all of its brilliance, right? I mean, none of us can be Homer. The Iliad is redolent of that kind of atmosphere. Yeah. The Odyssey, as one of my grad school professors pointed out to me, Jack Holtzmark, the Odyssey is a thoroughly domestic epic. Every 20 to 30 lines, someone is either weeping or eating. Yes. And that's life. Right, right, exactly. Crying and eating. That's That's really all there is. That's my life. (laughs) Sometimes I cry because I haven't had enough to eat. (laughs) Yeah. And as we'll see, the first time we actually see our hero, Odysseus, in the text... He's breaking down. Yes. He's breaking down, right? He's weeping. Another way that I've unpacked that Aristotle, his difference between the, the Iliad and the Odyssey is, I'll often describe to my students the Odyssey as a comedy and the Iliad as a, as a tragedy. Not so much the Odyssey a comedy in that it's, it's funny, though I think there are some humorous parts to it, uh, but comedy in that it's, as the saying goes, in a comedy you get hitched and in, the, in a tragedy you die. Mm-hmm. And so the Iliad is a, is a poem about death and the Odyssey is a poem about Life, human life. It does not end with a marriage per se, but it does end with a reunion of husband and wife. Yes. Yeah. And so the key word in the Iliad, anger, the first word in Western lit, as we like to say, yeah. that's replaced in the Odyssey by another focal point. Yes. Andra. Mm-hmm. Andra, right. So uh, those of you who listen to our Iliad episodes might remember we talk about the power of that first word um, in the Iliad. So main and the rage, the anger of Achilles is, is kind of a guidestone for understanding uh, the major themes and even where the plot of the Iliad goes, I think you can make the argument that Andra, a man, uh, a human being, plays a similar kind of role here. Kind of again, uh, Homer is packing down in this you know roughly twelve thousand line poem everything into that one word. And like you were saying earlier, this is a, a poem. Uh, it's a domestic poem. It's about being a human being. Yeah. And I would also I would push that further and saying even Homer's exploring, despite Athena's meddling and uh, other gods kind of showing up. This really is a poem uh, where, compared to the Iliad, the gods have receded. Yes. Yeah. They still drive the plot, and they still have plans and purposes, but they're not center stage. Right. Definitely. So we, we have as well this shift from, as you put it, the brawny hero. Yeah. Right? Uh, to the brainy hero. Yes. So the brawny hero is Achilles. Now, he has some moments of cleverness in the Iliad, but they're few and far between. Right. He's kind of presented more as a killing machine, a very effective one. And then we get to see the consequences of that rage played out in the lives of his associates. The Odyssey, by contrast, is the wily person, the right. versatile. 
Right. Yeah. And if you were to you know look at folklores and and mythologies around the world, those are those are archetypes. You have, like the the strongman hero. If you think of Gilgamesh and Enkidu, the trickster hero. Um, so you, that's, these are uh, hero types. And I've also heard the argument that the, the Odyssey represents a kind of a passing of the torch. Uh, I mean, the Greeks had place in their mythology for both of those types of heroes, right? I mean, so, you know, Heracles, he's kind of a, he's a brawny hero, not that much going on upstairs. Uh, if we look at the scene where uh, after Achilles' death, this is not a, a scene that we find anywhere in Homer, but as part of the larger tradition, um, the, the Greeks would celebrate the lives of, of these heroes with funeral games. Right. And so uh, the Greeks compete after the death of Achilles, and then the Greeks judge who who competed the best, mm-hmm. and it comes down between Odysseus and Ajax. Yes, Ajax the, the Greater. The longest telling of this is in Ovid. Yes, and we'll have to do an episode on that at some point. The agon or the the conflict between the two heroes as to who gets the prize of Achilles' famous armor. Right. The armor made for him by Hephaestus. Yes, exactly. And who wins? Well, Odysseus wins. Is right. it because he's the better soldier, the stronger man? He, well, I mean, certainly he's not the he's not not as strong as Ajax. Ajax is kind of, you know, Achilles' man that's, that, you know, is waiting to take his place. Robin to his Batman. There you go. Exactly. Um, but he's the he's the best in terms of his his cunning. And and so he gets the armor of Achilles. I know according to one tradition, Odysseus immediately gives that armor to Achilles' son, mm-hmm. uh, Neoptolemus. And uh, another way of saying that, you know, Odysseus has no need for armor like that. That's not how he fights. And of course, Ajax doesn't take it too well, does he? No, it drives him insane, actually, and eventually leads to his suicide. Right. In in some way, we could see that um, symbolically speaking as maybe a, a kind of death of the of the brawny hero, a death mm-hmm. of the strong man. And That's an a, interesting interpretation. And a, and a preference, perhaps, for the for the trickster. Yes. Maybe I don't know. So this this trickster, and we will read after the break the first few lines of the Odyssey in Greek and give a nice translation. But this trickster character, Odysseus, set out at the very beginning. Do you think that he is a, a liar, that he's a dishonest person? I think that, to answer it simply, yes, he is, right? It's a use of cunning, the use of lies to gain an advantage over his adversaries. I think the Greeks celebrated that to a certain degree. Sure. Right. A, a kind of a comparison I, I will often give uh, when I teach this is the heist movies, like the Ocean's Eleven, right? Where what these guys are doing is, by the letter of the law, dishonest and wrong, you know, pulling off the great trick, there's a there's a release and there's a delight in that. Yeah, and their skill is so phenomenal and unparalleled that that's where they get your sympathy. Yes. Right? You're on their side because like Robin Hood, they're so good at what they do. And so, of course, in an introductory philosophy course or something, I remember when I first took philosophy, you are presented with these moral dilemmas sometimes for the first time in your life. Is it okay to lie to an enemy? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Socrates deals with this. Do you give a knife back to someone that you've promised to give it to if you know he's going to harm himself uh, with that? Mm -hmm. Right. So these are these moral dilemmas. Must one be honest all the time? And so as we look at the character of Odysseus, he is arguably dishonest throughout the whole entire epic. But the purpose is to be rejoined with his wife and his son and to reclaim his throne as king of Ithaca. Yes. I would say most of the time. I and mean, there are times where he lies, where you want to shake him and say, what are you doing? It's just for fun. It's just for fun. Yeah. It's for fun. Or if he, he loses himself in these characters that he that he creates. Well, maybe that's part of the appeal of him as well. Uh, maybe that's part of the lesson, you know, not to get to the moral so quickly, but if you engage in this kind of behavior so routinely, you start to lose track of your own identity. Right. A, a liar is someone who can never believe anybody else. Hmm. 
So, Jeff, we fast forward about 300 years from Aristotle and we come to another literary critic, this man, not a biologist, the uh, Roman poet Horace. Yes. And he has the famous expression in his letter to the Pisos, it's called the Ars Poetica, that Homer snatches the reader in medias race. In the middle of things. Yes. yes. Thrusts him right into the center of the action. Yeah. And that's something that we see in this poem as well. It is the archetype of that notion. Yeah. So just like in the Iliad, which uh, the action begins fairly close to the end of the war, similar kind of thing in the Odyssey. We see uh, Telemachus and Penelope and their house besieged by suitors. Um, It's been going on for quite some time. When we ultimately see Odysseus for the first time in book five, fairly close to the end of his wanderings. And so the war and all of his fellow soldiers are dead. His ships are sunk. Um, we're in the, we're, it's almost to the climax, but not quite. We're dropped right into the middle of the, of the action. Yes, absolutely. So the Iliad, year nine of the war, yeah. a short 51-day snippet of the whole thing. Right. The Odyssey, Homer doesn't even bother, except in a series of memorable flashbacks, to talk about what happens in between the two poems, you might say. Mm-hmm. But there we start in book one, and we start with A Council of the Gods. Now, today we're going to deal with books one through four, which have historically been called the Telemachia. Right. And in fact, scholars have spent a long uh, long time debating whether perhaps the first four books were at one time a separate epic. The coming-to-age story of Telemachus later stitched together with the older story of Odysseus's return. Right. It's related to this question of, of when Homer performed these things. Uh, how much did he perform at one point, and did some of these these smaller chunks uh, serve as set pieces? Correct. Yeah. yeah. The question of the Unitarian versus uh, analytical approach. Exactly. Who, who was Homer? We'll deal with that at some point because I'm fascinated by that topic, but yeah. not today. Same here. Thinking about this this Telemachia, this uh, this coming of age story. I mean, it's striking that the first full four books of the Odyssey. Uh, Odysseus isn't on stage at all. Correct. I mean, I mean he's certainly present, right? The, his his absence is looms over everything. But this is kind of a, a, a becomes kind of an archetypal structure element in in hero journeys. The son who doesn't know who his father is, or the the son who can't claim his full identity until he's reunited with the father. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so this it's it's Luke Skywalker. I was just right? going to bring that up and say how much that annoys me. Oh. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean it annoys you? Well, I like those movies, of course, the first set, they're very good movies, mm-hmm. but the notion that this is somehow groundbreaking storytelling is absurd. Come yeah. on, read some Homer. Right, exactly. And I mean, Lucas himself, you know, who you know, structured his stories on yes. Joseph Campbell's ideas. That's right. Uh, Lucas would be the first one, I would hope, to say, no, these, my, this, this structure isn't my idea at all. No. Right. But yeah, I think that's um, that myopic view of mythic narrative. Every generation kind of reinvents the wheel or, or you know, does something uh, new. But it's, it's absurd. Without, without Homer, there would be no Star Wars. Right. right. So Telemachus has to come of age in the absence of a father. Mm-hmm. How did he get himself into this circumstance? Well, he didn't do anything. He was just a, he was just a baby. Okay. <laughs> so what's the backstory here on Telemachus' birth? How right. old was he when his father left? Traditions um, say that he was an infant. Right. So he, uh, Odysseus goes off to war. He's drafted not long after Telemachus is born. Yes. Right. So he and all of the suitors for Helen's hand, they take an oath. Right. To protect the rights of whoever wins the hand of Helen, this beautiful woman in marriage. Menelaus wins. Uh, then she's, she, Helen, is stolen by Paris. And all of the Greek heroes assemble to keep their oath. Right. Not Odysseus. No. He doesn't want to do that. 
So there he is in Ithaca, and Agamemnon sends Palamedes to bring him into line. Yes. You got to honor your oath, Odysseus. We're all going to go back. We're all going to go over to Troy and recover Helen for Menelaus. Right. And what does Odysseus do so that he can try to fool Palamedes, this representative of Agamemnon? Yeah, right. So Odysseus, he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go at all. And so when Palamedes finds him, he's out plowing in his fields, but he's plowing like a crazy man. Yeah, he has uh, an ox and an ass hitched to the plow animals of different strength. And right. so what happens to the plow then? The plow's going, it's herky-jerky, it's all over the place. It's yeah. like driving in Michigan snow, right? <laughs> right. Fishtail here, bob there. Right. It's it's insane, right? But that's the point. He wants to be, he wants to plead insanity here and, and, and get off the hook. No crazy men no. Uh, enlisted in this expedition to Troy. Right. But Palamedes sees this coming. He knows Odysseus. He knows what uh, Odysseus is known for. And so to prove that Odysseus is actually sane, he takes the infant Telemachus out into the field and places it right in the path of the plow. Like a game of chicken. Yes. The baby Telemachus there in the furrow, is Odysseus going to swerve and thereby prove his sanity? Or is he going to run right over his own son? Right. And he chooses to save his son. Yes, of course. So he stops the plow, returns the plow, and thereby giving away his sanity, and it's off to Troy. Yeah, it takes the keys out of the ignition. Says, so you got me, Palamedes. You right. Know, you've outsmarted me. I'm going to go to Troy, say goodbye to my wife, Penelope, and my newborn son. And that aspect of Palamedes outwitting Odysseus, I don't think that gets enough attention. No. Well, it's in Apollodorus. It's not in Homer, and so it's a little more obscure. Great right. story, though. It is a great story, but uh, I mean, the rare time where Odysseus is, is fooled, mm. is outwitted. I've never heard that get the I think the attention that it deserves. But so that is how Odysseus got himself to Troy, and now nineteen years later, ten years of war and seven to nine years of returning, Odysseus is not home. Telemachus has grown up fatherless. Many of the heroes who fought at Troy, the Achaeans, they did make it home, but not Odysseus. Uh, many Greeks died, of course. Achilles dies at Troy, and uh, the Greek heroes make it home. Also, lots of trouble on the way home. Um, blown off course. Um, Ajax, the lesser, is is killed halfway home. Impaled on a rock. Impaled, yes, exactly right. Memorably told by uh, Virgil. But the group that, that comes home, they have a name, and these stories apparently formed part of the epic cycle. Right. The stories of return, they're called the Nostoi. If you're taking notes, of course you are. It's N-O-S-T-O-I, the Nostoi, the return stories. Right. And so Odysseus has arguably the most famous Nostos of them all that return. So it's the root of a, a word uh, like nostalgia, the, the pain of going back, hmm. right? Um, and so Odysseus's story is just one of many return stories and belongs to kind of this larger tapestry of, kind of the Trojan War saga that Homer is the most important part of. Now, why does Telemachus figure so large in the first four books? Why, why not just tell the story from the perspective of Odysseus? Why do we care whether Telemachus grows up? I think there's a, a, a number of ways you can answer that question. I think in, in some ways it, it builds attention that makes the story much more interesting. Uh, you know, Homer puts off um, showing us the the main hero for, for hundreds of lines, for several books. It certainly builds uh, the drama. What's happening at home? Um, what has happened in Odysseus's absence? Kind of that devastation at home in the absence of a hero is, is also a, a, a structural part of many hero legends. Well put, Jeff. So then after the break, we're gonna get right into the Greek and the first part of the story. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. 
Since 1972, Hackett has been an independent publisher of high-quality translations in the field of classics, as well as many other corners of the humanities. Jeff, can you tell our listeners about some of the work Hackett has to offer? I can. Hackett's growing classics list includes hundreds of titles covering ancient history, literature, philosophy, political science, and classical language study. Hackett editions are ideal for both classroom use and general readership, offering affordable modern translations and editions of classic works with helpful scholarly notes, annotations, and introductions. I love their classical lit backlist, including translations of the Iliad and Odyssey. Today we're going to be featuring some of Stanley Lombardi's Bardo's Odyssey, as well as Virgil's Aeneid, Ovid's Metamorphoses, and even a new verse rendering of Gilgamesh. Very exciting. Dave, why don't you drop the goods on our loyal listeners? What's the dessert here at Shea A.N.? Ad nauseum listeners, listen up. You can save 20% on any order and receive free shipping from Hackett Publishing. All you have to do is go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, we trust you can spell publishing, find the text you want, and enter the code AN2021 in the box which asks for it. It's a great deal. Don't hesitate. Check out hackettpublishing.com today. Today's episode is also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. The good people at Ratio have been helping to caffeinate the world for some years now with their aesthetically robust, dynamically effective line of premium coffee makers. Dave, why don't you tell our listeners how the Ratio machines work? Well, it's quite simple, Jeff. Instead of having your precious brew trickle down through a plastic basket into some cheap glass carafe sitting on a hot old burner, the Ratio sends 200-degree Fahrenheit water soaring through a Fibonacci showerhead. It then sits in the bloom stage for a few minutes, allowing all of the harsh CO2 to off-gas, depositing in the hand-blown borosilicate glass or stainless steel carafe consistent delicious coffee. No brackish tang. No brackish tang? That's right. Uh, so I understand that the ratio 8 is all sold out, but it's uh, little brother the 6 uh, at a more attainable price point is still available in both black, matte, and white stainless. That's right. So listen up, Ad Nazanots. Go to RatioCoffee.com right now and get a 15% exclusive discount on the Ratio 6. Between now and March 20, 2021, go to RatioCoffee.com and enter special code ANCO. That's ANCO, or backward O-C-N-A, but make sure you put it forward. For 15% off the Ratio 6, ANCO, RatioCoffee.com. Don't not check it out. Dave, do we have a third sponsor today? Indeed we do, Jeff. Who is it? It's the Moss Method. The Moss Method? The Moss Method. I have no idea what that is. Tell us, please. How could you not have any idea what that is? <laughs> We've been talking about this for weeks. I know. I have, I have short-term memory problems. That's fine. So it is a method I've developed for learning Greek. Instead of just listening to you and me recite Greek here on the podcast, listeners can go study it on their own. I offer a self-paced, expert, and accessible way to master the Greek language. Wow. It will take you from... You have a phrase here that I can't remember. (laughs) Neophyte (laughs) to erudite. erudite. That's right, yeah. Neophyte to erudite. What's it cost? Great question, Jeff. For $299, (laughs) you can take the first module. That includes 40 lessons, video lessons, accessible through my website, as well as 40 assignments, six quizzes, two exams. If you don't learn Greek this way, there's no way you can. This is from you. You're not foisting this off on some TA, right? No, no, no. I do all of this myself directly. I interact. I'm Zooming. I'm texting. I'm reading. All that kind of stuff. Scatting all over the place. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) You know how I feel about jazz, right? (laughs) I think we have talked about that, yes. (laughs) 
So as we get back into this, we're gonna we're gonna start at the beginning. Good place to start, right? Absolutely. And so I think we should start with some uh, with some Greek. Oh, I'd love to. Are, would you read it for us? Yes. Yeah, so these are lines one through five of the Odyssey, Book One. Here's how it goes: Andromoyen pemusa palutra panhasma la polla, plankthea pe troi asiaron ptoliethron a person, palon danthropon eden astia kaina on egno. Pala de heng panto pathen alge a hon katathumon. Arnumenos hent epsukane kainosten hetiron. Very, very nicely done. I tripped up a little bit here and there, but that's what happens when you wing it. <laughs> that's right. Um, and let me give a translation of those lines. I'd love uh, to hear that. Who says this? This is uh, the, the famous translation from Alexander Pope. Alex Pope Alex showing Pope. up on the podcast. Yes, from way back in when, the day. When was this? This is 1725. Wow. Right. And his rendering of these opening lines is something like, well, it's exactly like this. Uh, the man for wisdom's various arts renowned, long exercised in woes, O muse resound, who when his arms had wrought the destined fall of sacred Troy and raised her heaven-built wall, wandering from climb to climb, observant strayed, their manners noted and their states surveyed, on stormy seas, unnumbered toils he bore safe with his friends to gain his natal shore. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love those rhyming couplets. You, you, you love the rhyming? I do. Right? A lot of people don't care for that. And it's amazing that Pope can keep it up for both epics. Thousands of lines. Yes, yes, yes. I had a, a graduate school advisor who uh, loathed Pope's translation. How could you loathe it? I don't know. But he, he liked to tell a story about... When it was uh, it was published to you know to great renown and uh, I mean Pope's translation opened the door for lots of people you know, absolutely for the first time but there was some uh, some British uh, intellectual came up to him and said pretty poem Mr Pope but you mustn't call it Homer something like that that's that's my grad school advisor imitating that guy. Uh, so I'm getting your imitation of your grad <laughs> school advisor right. imitating Pope's critic the guy who said quote Pope Schmope right exactly exactly right in a nutshell okay right so here we got it. We have the beginning, right? Yes. The man for wisdom's various arts renowned, long exercised in woes, O muse. There we have the invocation. No epic poem without a muse. He's presenting himself as a kind of medium. It's like, I'm singing the song, but it's not really my poem. Uh, the, the divine are singing through me. Yeah, it's a conduit for inspiration. Now, right there in the first line, we have this key word which defines Odysseus, even though, as you said, he's not going to show up until book five mm -hmm. in person, and that is the adjective palutropon. Yes. So we've got the Greek verb trepo, which means to turn, and we have this prefix palu. So Odysseus is the guy who is thoroughly versatile. Right. He can turn in any which way. He's like a lazy Steve. He wants to <laughs> at any time. Exactly right. I zero on, in on this word when I teach this as well. And uh, because it's it's so layered, right? So polutropon, much turned, uh, much tossed. It, it physically, physically describes Odysseus um, being thrown about on the seas. But it's also a term that's often translated as cunning, right? His mind is always turning. And so it's one of those words that the minute you translate it into another language, you've lost kind of the layered nuance of that word for sure yeah. because it has at least two distinct meanings like yep. you you already brought out yes so there we have right in the beginning we have odysseus the versatile man and soon we get into an elaboration of the plot because unlike modern stories for the most part everybody knows the story already there's there's no suspense no mystery yeah the delight comes in how is the poet the author going to work out this familiar theme yeah exactly so um, I think, as we mentioned when we talked about the Iliad, uh, the idea is that Homer was probably one of many, many poets 
uh, telling these songs and um, the, from you know, kind of improvising them from kind of the storehouse of cultural memory. But it was his versions that people gravitated towards. And when things got written down, it was his versions that got written down. Right. Now, what do these names mean, these different characters? Telemachus, the guy who uh, fights at a distance, maybe? He's the far fighter? Yeah, the way I always take that is that he's named after his father, Mm. right? So Odysseus is the one who's fighting far away. Because it's an ironic name for Telemachus, who's never, as far as we know, never left Ithaca before, right? He hasn't fought anywhere. No, he hasn't. Right. Yeah. So there's that kind of double meeting there as well, that Telemachus is going to be the person who ends up being a crucial to the conclusion of the epic and yes. to Odysseus's successful return, because here's a spoiler alert. When we get to the very end of the Odyssey, the epic, the two of them, father and son, are fighting arm in arm and killing off the suitors. That's right. So he is an effective fighter, but his fight is distant, just as his father is far away. Yes. Okay. I like that a lot. And yeah. what about the name Odysseus? Odysseus um, likely means something like the... The, the sorrowing one, the, the suffering one. He's kind of the, he's the man of constant sorrow. Yes, yeah. he grieves and grieves. Right. There's that centrality. No, I didn't say grieves and grieves. Gr- uh, like grieves. He grieves in grieves. <laughs> Do you remember the well-grieved Achaeans? <laughs> of course I remember them. Yeah, okay. Right. So they wear those shin guards to right. protect them. He grieves and grieves. Right. Were there any, were there any Achaeans who were shoddily grieved? There Probably had to be some, so. right? Yeah. It was always well-grieved. Right. Well-grieved Achaeans. El Knemides, I think, is the adjective I'm remembering. Yeah. What about Penelope? What is Penelope? What is her name? I think there's some mystery about it. I, Penelope's is a kind of duck, I've oh, read, right? That's um, news to me. That's news. And But the one that most people gravitate towards is the is the first part of her name, the, the, the Pene, having to do with like a thread. Hmm. Uh, she's a weaver, hmm. or something like that. Um, Pene, Penelope, means the face weaver, the, hmm. the, the, the thread-eyed. It's an odd name. I'm not exactly sure what it, it, uh, it, it means at its core. And Eurycleia? Eurycleia, the one of wide fame, yes. right? Which is a very noble name for a, um, a kind of a house servant. She's the nurse who will feature very importantly later on in the epic because of a, of a recognition scene. Yes. And then perhaps my favorite character, yes. the villain, Antinous. He's your favorite? Well, I just think he's so compelling because his name means... Uh, moron. Yeah. Mindless. Anti. Opposite of... not, yes. Mind. Noose. Right. So, so imagine if your parents called you, you know, mindless. Would that bode well for your presence in an epic? But it certainly kind of colors perhaps the way that, uh, I don't know, Homer wants us to think about. It's no kind of mystery how the how the, how the suitors come off. Um, they show their colors fairly quickly. Yes, much like in the scriptures, a point that bears repeating, names are indicative of character. Yes. Very and much. I would say in, in the in the Odyssey, much more so it's a, it's a live thing in the Odyssey than in the Iliad. Yes, yes. So Antinous, one of the suitors, there are 108 altogether who have taken up residence in the palace of Odysseus at Ithaca. Are they all named? I was, no, uh, the, but the, many of them are. Yeah. Many of them are named as well. It's kind of like uh, catalog poetry. We get a list. Of mm-hmm. Who are they and where do they come from and, and why are they there? Well, they're all hoping to vulture-like swoop in and uh, pick up where Odysseus has left off. Right. Get the wife, get the property, become wealthy. Uh, they can't resist. I mean, Homer doesn't give us a lot of I mean, it doesn't give us any uh, kind of notion, let's say, like, on how old Antinous is. But we have to believe that all of these suitors also grew up on Ithaca without 
ever really knowing Odysseus, or if they did know him, they were very young. I mean, they were young enough that they didn't go off to war at Troy. Yes, many of them. That, that's the key part. They didn't go to war in Troy. But some of them are not from Ithaca. They're from other parts of the Peloponnese. That's, that's, that's true. But for the most part... But your point stands, Odysseus sure. is an unknown uh, right. quantity to them. So they, when he does come home, they really have no idea what they're in for. Right. They don't really fear him as they should, because right. no sense of how powerful and cunning he is. Right. And if you look at how you know, Telemachus first comes off in these, in, these opening, in these opening scenes, he's kind of a mama's boy, right? He does, he's, I mean, part of Telemachus' journey is that he has to stand up for himself. He's got to get, he's got to come out from behind um, Penelope's apron strings and do it for himself. That's an excellent point. But of course, he doesn't do it entirely for himself. He has a lot of divine aid. And this allows us to introduce perhaps the second most important character in the epic, and that is Athena. Athena, yes. Goddess of cunning, goddess of, of warcraft, goddess of weaving. Yes. Uh, my personal favorite Olympian deity. Really? Yes. Do you have a favorite? It would probably be Athena. Okay, what I like about her is that when she comes out of Zeus's mind, she comes out not only in panoply, right, full armor, but she comes out screaming, right, full war cry. Yeah. That's such a compelling image. It is. It sticks. And she, of course, it's immortalized on the pediment of the Parthenon. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she makes, she finds her way into so many different stories, right? So this is with uh, Telemachus and of course, Odysseus, she plays this, uh, this mentor figure. And in fact, she takes on the guise of mentor as we'll as we'll talk about um and so she finds her way into so many di different stories is that she, there's there's just so much more to talk about when it comes to athena than say uh, mars mars yeah exactly aries aries right a, a dullard kind of a brute right there's not there's not much there and so um athena of course the patron goddess of the city of athens the deity we're told by cicero that these poems were put together at the end of the sixth century so the 520s, something like that. He says that they were assembled into their final form under the Athenian tyrant Pisistratus. Hmm. And so one of the suggestions is that Athena looms large in this epic, maybe larger than originally. I don't know if this holds up to good scholarship, but th this is the idea. Because Pisistratus wanted her in there. So some, just some Athenian bias. A little bit of editing here and there. Yeah. And likewise, the character of Pisistratus is an important character later on in book two, when he accompanies Telemachus to the home of Nestor. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So what does the name Athena mean? Or I should say, what is her epithet is a better way to put it. Well, she's got lots of epithets. I mean, homerically speaking, her most famous ones are having to do gray-eyed, mm -hmm. uh, Glaucopus, um, uh, flashing-eyed Athena. Yeah. Gleaming gray, flashing-eyed Glaucopus. Yes. So in this epic, Athena really drives the action. And as book one opens, after the preliminaries, there's a council of the gods. Yes. Poseidon, who is the antagonist, the nemesis of Odysseus, he's not there at the council of the gods. Where is he again? He's off in Ethiopia. Ethiopia, way, way south. Yes. And what's he doing there? He's Working on his tan? or? <laughs> I'm sure he was doing that, but he's getting also a grand sacrifice of many bulls. Okay. You don't All pass right. that up. No, no. So while he's down there, Athena sees her opportunity to advocate on behalf of her favorite, Odysseus. Right. This is, this is such an interesting scene. Before Athena starts to kind of steer the action, we get this council of the gods. Poseidon is, is away. Uh, the gods are a little bit more free to, to, to speak, speak their minds. And Zeus seems to be on the verge of just kind of washing his hands of mortals um, once, and, once and for all. He talks about how the, he complains about how the mortals are always blaming them for their troubles. He talks about how they've tried to help 
um, you know, other heroes and other characters along the way? And, and do they listen? Of, of course not. So he's ready just to say, to heck with them. And that's when Athena speaks up. Yes. So this is the Lombardo translation. Athena glared at him, meaning at Zeus, with her owl gray eyes. Yes, O our father who art most high. That man, meaning Agisthus, got the death he richly deserved. And so perish all who would do the same. But it's Odysseus I'm worried about, that discerning, ill-fated man. He suffered so long, separated from his dear ones, on an island that lies in the center of the sea, a wooded isle that is home to a goddess, the daughter of Atlas, whose dread mind knows all the depths of the sea, and who supports the tall pillars that keep earth and heaven apart. His daughter detains the poor man in his grief, sweet-talking him constantly, trying to charm him into forgetting Ithaca. But Odysseus, longing to see even the smoke curling up from his land, simply wants to die. And yet you never think of him, Olympian. Didn't Odysseus please you with sacrifices beside the Greek ships at Troy? Why is Odysseus so odious, Zeus? Athena is one of the few people that can speak to Zeus this way and, and get away with it. The favorite daughter. The favorite daughter. You mean that the beginning of that, Athena glared at him. How many, how many other gods uh, or mortals could ever deign to glare at yeah, Zeus? Yeah, to look at Zeus that way with his ambrosial locks and his heroic torso and so on and so forth. Athena would do it. She would do it. Because and she's the favorite. She's the favorite. And it works. Zeus uh, kind of backs down. And says, oh, he says, yes, of course, uh, I will remember Odysseus. I made a promise. I'll keep it. I'll make sure Odysseus gets home. So then uh, Lombardo goes on here in his translation. Can you read the next couple lines? Because they're, they're very, very nice when Athena stops speaking. My pleasure. Athena spoke and she bound on her feet the beautiful sandals, golden immortal that carry her over landscape and seascape on a puff of wind. And she took the spear, bronze tipped and massive, that the daughter uses to level battalions of heroes in her wrath. She shot down from the peaks of Olympus to Ithaca, where she stood on the threshold of Odysseus's outer porch. Holding her spear, she looked like Mentes, the Taphian captain, and her eyes rested on the arrogant suitors. The eyes, once again, the eyes of Athena, now they come to rest on the arrogant suitors. And she's out for blood. Yes. They have been eating Odysseus out of house and home. They have been not observing the rules of Xenia, guest friendship. But Athena, instead of just intervening in a way to destroy the suitors on her own, she's going to find a way to motivate Telemachus. Right. Help him come of age, take his rightful position as Odysseus's son, and really execute her divine will. Yeah. And a question that I often get from students who are new to this is that is... Athena knows exactly where Odysseus is. She's just talked about it at length. Uh, he's on this this island with Calypso. That's the the daughter of Atlas, and uh, he she could easily appear to Telemachus as Athena and say, "Hey, sit tight. Your dad's coming home." But of course, Athena knows it's not just Odysseus's story. Right. It's uh, she has to motivate Telemachus to act on his own, and that's an essential part of his maturation. And it's Penelope's story as well. Right. That's the brilliance of this epic. There are no shortcuts. Everything has to play out in a way that would naturally play out. I mean, the students that I teach, they might sometimes, like you've said, they might sometimes think the divine intervention is unnatural, but really all human motives and interests are allowed full sway before they've kind of reached their end. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing thing about the epic. Exactly. And, uh, you know, Homer also kind of teases us from time to time with kind of the notion of that even the gods themselves 
are enthralled to powers that are above them. That's right, the Moirai or the the Parkai in Latin, the Fates. Right. So the gods themselves are limited in humankind's of ways as well. It's they just have another, to follow kind of, another kind of rippling out that makes it so this story so fascinating. Yes, they have to follow destiny. Now we know that Odysseus is trapped on the island of Ogygia with Calypso. You enjoy saying Ogygia. Ogygia, I like it a lot. <laughs> Nobody knows exactly where it is. It's down near uh, Malta, south of Sicily. That's the most common. That's the, that's the traditional Ogygia. Yes, Ogygia, down right. there somewhere. And the name Calypso, we're going to talk about her later, uh, means the one who hides because she's hiding Odysseus away from the view of gods and men. Yeah, again, the the importance of names. Okay, Jeff, so as we wrap this up for today, next week, a full episode devoted just to book four. Yeah, there's so much great stuff going on. This is where Telemachus goes off on his journey and he makes his way over to Sparta, where he is hosted by uh, Menelaus and Helen. Who They're back together? Back together. They've limped their way back to, to Sparta and it's like the original dysfunctional family. Reunited and it doesn't feel so good, that's, you might that's say. That's exactly right, right. All right, Dave, I believe you have a quote to, to get us out of here today, right? Yes, this is from a scholar C.M. Baura from his work From Virgil to Milton, 1945. He's discussing the genre of epic. He says, quote, an epic poem is by common consent a narrative of some length and deals with events which have a certain grandeur and importance and come from a life of action, especially violent action such as war. It gives a special pleasure because its events and persons enhance our belief in the worth of human achievement and in the dignity and nobility of man. Ah, wonderful. So I think Baura and, and Torquato on the same page. Definitely. These yeah. are themes we're going to continue to revisit as we go through this gorgeous epic. That's right. But we got to get out of here. There's a, there's a quilting bee at the door, and you don't mess with angry quilters. No. Listeners. Uh, and, and their quilty pleasures, right? <laughs> oh, man. I knew you were going there. Listeners. Uh, leave us a nice review uh, when you get a chance. Uh, subscribe. Um, if you have questions, you have suggestions, ideas for episodes, you can contact us at uh, dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or if you want to write to me, it's jeff at adnauseum.com. And check out the website. Yes, we would really enjoy that. If you like what you listen, maybe pick up a T-shirt, leave a little tip under the wine glass, you might say. Please do. Next week, Odyssey Book 4, Menelaus and Helen. We also want to say a special thank you to the gentleman who provided us with this wonderful music for the intro and outro, uh, guitar wizard, Mr. Scott Van Zen. Thanks, Scott. And we want to say thank you to our sound engineer, Mishka Fernando. Jeff, I believe you have the gustatory parting shot. I do. And this week it comes from Scott Adams, who is the mad genius behind the comic strip Dilbert. He says, life is half delicious yogurt, half crap, and your job is to keep the plastic spoon in the yogurt. I love that. See you next time. Thanks for listening. 